open your Bible to Jude. You might, uh, if you don't know where it is, go to the end in Revelation and go left. Just a page. And it's a little tiny book. It's a letter written by Jude that we're going to study for the next four Sundays. So I'm going to read actually the whole chapter and then we're just going to go over the first two verses this morning. Hear the word of the living God. This is the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit, 
but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And God's people said, Amen. You can go home and say you've read a whole book of the Bible today. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly before your word today. We ask that you would do your work, the work only you can do, God. You know I have no power, no power in my words but come from you. And so may your word do what it does. I pray, O oh God, for your people as they hear that they would be encouraged and strengthened. And that each of us would be those who would contend for the faith. Help us. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Difficult conversations are are difficult, right? <laughs> when there's confrontation and conflict that comes, whether it's in a marriage or family life and uh, uh, people that are close to you, anything that's difficult in conversation that you most, must have is, is quite a challenge, especially in the church. Because we live in an era where one of the biggest sins, quote-unquote, is to actually claim someone is in sin. That's like you don't even talk about that. And then we have this world where there's a billion different voices that are constantly vying for our attention and our, and our listening and our focus. Who do you listen to? What voice grabs your ear and your attention? Many would scoff at it, it's, it, 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 in, in this way by saying things like, well, what gives you the right to talk to me? What gives you the right to tell me anything? What gives you the right to tell me that I'm wrong? Don't tell me what to do. It shows the understanding or the lack of understanding we have of authority. And so we come to this, this little book of Jude in a society that is, wants to constantly throw off instruction... And Jude is going to give instruction on how to live and how to contend for the faith. He's going to talk about life in the sense of how you live it, because how we live our lives, our actions, our deeds, the things that we do are actually the most reliable indicator of what you believe. You can tell me you believe something, and you can be lying through your teeth, but we'll never know it until it comes out in your life. And this is Jude's message. 
In essence, if I could wrap it up, he, he wants the church to know the grace of God and that the grace of God through Jesus actually calls us to something and, and demands something from us. It demands a response. It demands obedience. And it's a response that's a response of the whole life. It's not just a Sunday response. It's a 24-7, every moment of every day type of response because of what we realize. Truth. Truth matters. And we don't want our lives to be weak and faltering. We want them to be solid, right? Like, like solid concrete. When you walk on concrete and it's solid on your feet, but when it comes to the concrete of our lives, if you will, if our lives are built upon the concrete of the choices that we make, of the actions that we take, then truth is the rebar of our actions. Y'all know what rebar is, right? Throw that picture up if they don't. There's a picture of rebar here. When you pour concrete, you can pour it without rebar. And you could pour it without rebar if you're pouring a very thin foundation of something. So if you pour the concrete, it's not a big deal if it's like really thin and shallow. If you're going to go deep, if you're going to have a solid foundation that's actually going to last and not crumble, you've got to have rebar in there in order to, for the concrete to hold on to something. Truth is the rebar of our lives, of our actions, of our deeds. And without truth, it will crack and crumble and fall apart. And so comes Jude. It's a short sermon in a, in a letter. It's short because it was a matter of urgency for Jude. And it really is a matter of urgency. It's a matter of urgency even in our generation, in every generation. Because we become aware of those who, by their conflicting voices, will desire to plunge God's people into confusion and into chaos. And that's the issue that was happening in the church here that Jude was writing to. We don't know where they were, what city they were. He doesn't tell us. We believe it's probably a church made up of a lot of believing Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, because of the way he references the Old Testament. We'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. Jude had another thing he actually wanted to write to them. If you look again at verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he wanted to stay positive. He wanted to stay upbeat. He wanted to just take out the treasure chest of salvation in Jesus Christ and open it up and start showing off the jewels. And look at how amazing this is. Look at how glorious this is. And he says, instead, I can't. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend <coughs> for the faith that was once delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. Something was going on in this church that grabbed his attention to say, I wanted to talk about this great common salvation we share, but i got to write to you about some things that you're hearing and you're understanding that are, that's going to kill you, going to destroy you. And it's these false teachers that had risen up in this church wherever it was. And without question, I like John MacArthur wrote these words, without question, the greatest threat to the church has always been false teaching. It's, subtly, and it's subtlety and severity make it a spiritual poison unlike any other. 
While external threats such as religious persecution and the world's animosity are certainly unpleasant, the wounds they inflict are only physical and the injuries they cause only temporary. The deadliest false teaching, on the other hand, comes not from the deceptive, from deceptive non-Christian religions outside the church, but from spiritual pretenders inside the church. So Jude, as we just read, is going to give a scathing rebuke. And we're going to cover that next week. And it deserves the rebuke. False teachers is, well, I like what Puritan Thomas Manton wrote. He wrote, there are false teachers who are, quote, like worms that breed within the body and seek to devour the entrails and eat out the very bowels of it. Close quote. That's how Puritans talked. <laughs> I kind of like it. Eat out your bowels. <laughs> and we still need it today, these truths, vitally, because in the church today there is a general lack of doctrinal discernment. There, there's a famine of understanding of the the great guardrails of the Christian faith in our day. And so there's a lack of contending for the faith because we don't understand the, the great guardrails of the faith. What are those? It's, it's sola scriptura first and foremost. It's also understanding church history. And it's an understanding of the creeds and confessions of the church which have been guardrails for centuries. We have to be careful, though, I, I do understand, because we, we can get all riled up about such issues, and, 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 and so I'm not advocating some sort of narrow, mean-spirited, superficial, doctrinal nitpicking that's characterized certain traditions, uh, or certain Facebook conversations. <laughs> Nor am I advocating uncharitable tribalism, like we've got the truth and nobody else does. So as we go through this study, I hope you hear my heart, but more than that, hear the heart of Jude. This issue is vital because Jude will not allow doctrinal indifference to stand. It is essential to know what you believe and then to live what you believe. And so Jude begins to pen this letter in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes a threat and he wants the church to heed the warning and to fight for the faith, to contend for the faith. But also, I want us to see this morning in these first two verses what a great pastor Jude is because how he begins this letter is everything. He lays a foundation for some vital truths that the church must realize before they contend. And so that's what we're talking about today, realizing the faith. And by realize, I, I, I want to go back to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary definition because I think it's fantastic. What does it mean to realize something? He gives several definitions. It means to bring into being or act. It means to impress on the mind as a reality. It means to, to actually believe it and to consider, to treat it as if it's, what, really real. Imagine that. Treating your faith as if it's really real. Because it is. It means to bring it home to one's own case or experience, to consider as one's own and to feel in all its force. To bring it into actual existence 
and possession and to render it tangible and effective. And so three things this morning I have for you on these first two verses about realizing the faith. First, we've got to realize who you are in Christ, Christian. Secondly, to realize where you are in Christ. And thirdly, to realize what you have in Christ. We find these three things in these first two verses among the whole bunch. And I picked three because it's a triad. Jude loves triads. We're going to see three all over the place. Pick them out with me as we go through it. And let's go to point number one after a very long intro. (laughs) Point number one, realize who you are in Christ. Jude starts by introducing himself, and and I want you to pay notice to his identity. Verse 1, he just says his name, Jude. That's the way ancient letters began. They they, they introduced themselves first. We give our salutation at the end. They give their their, their greeting at the beginning. Jude. And it's actually, Jude is, in the Hebrew, it's Judah. So it's the, the Old Testament word, the old Hebrew word, Judah. And in the Greek, it's actually the name Judas. Can you guess why they wouldn't want to name the book Judas? (laughs) But that's his real name, actually. Um, His his real name is Judas, uh, or Judah, and there's a lot wrapped up here in this simple greeting. We're going to see that that Judas is actually the half-brother of Jesus. We know Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph was his earthly stepfather, who, who raised him, but he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. Jude was one of those kids. He introduces himself, though, this way. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Right? So we, we understand if he's the brother of James, that means he's also the half-brother of Jesus because James was the half-brother of Jesus. And so if Jude here is the brother of James, who was a very important figure in the Jerusalem church, the leader of the Jerusalem church that he became, there's a key relationship that Jude has with Jesus himself. It's a familial relationship. It's quite amazing. We see in Matthew 13 that Judas is actually mentioned. Jude is mentioned. If you look at verse 53 of Matthew 13, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? This is Jude. Not, are not all his sisters in us? He keeps going on about this, but and it's not painting the brothers and the family of Jesus in a, in a good positive light. We actually read later in Mark chapter 3 that they thought Jesus was crazy. It says in verse 21, And when the family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Jesus was doing what Jesus does, He was preaching, he was teaching, he was healing, he was doing all these wonderful miracles. And Judas, along with his other brothers, are like, what's wrong with our brother? He's crazy. Who does he think he is? And now, I understand that. You might be down on Judas and James because of that. I get it, because I have siblings. Do you have siblings? Can you imagine being Jesus' younger stepbrother? He takes the trash out every time he's asked. He never fights back with mom and dad. 
He never says a harsh word. He thinks he's perfect. Well, yeah, he actually does. <laughs> the logical conclusion of someone in that situation, understand that, growing up the stepbrother Jesus, I don't think the logical complete conclusion is going to be, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one, right? No, you're gonna, you grew up with them. And so they thought he was crazy. They actually, we see evidence in scripture that his brothers, his family, never, didn't even believe in him. They rejected him until something happened. What happened? He died and he rose from the dead. Jesus rose again. <coughs> what changed in Judas's life? Jesus rose from the dead. That's what changed. And the resurrection changes everything. Now here's what's interesting, though, in this first little verse. Jude doesn't come at it and say, I'm the brother of James, and guess what? I'm also the half-brother of Jesus. I grew up in the house with him. I probably would have dropped that bomb on people. You might have dropped that bomb on people. Jude doesn't drop that bomb on people. He actually approaches it in the most humble way. What does he say? He says, here's who I am, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. There's two words used in, primarily in scripture for that word servant, and one is diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon from, and that's it's a word that means kind of table servant, a, a waiter, a, a servant, or a government official. It could mean a lot of things in that realm. But the other word is doulos. And doulos literally is better translated as the word slave. That's the word he uses here. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He goes actually so far in a few verses, in the end of verse 4, he calls Jesus Christ our only master and Lord. You see, Jude understands something about his identity and who he is. He knows that in, of, in and of himself there is no good thing. He knows that he was redeemed by the Master, the Lord, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he understands that earthly relationships are certainly very important, but there's nothing, there's no other relationship that supersedes the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What a privilege to grow up in the household with Jesus, and yet Jude does not emphasize that. He emphasizes his lordship. He emphasizes his identity as a slave of Jesus Christ. And guess what? That is not only Jude's identity, but that is the identity of every Christian in all of history. That's my identity. That's your identity. Being a slave of Jesus Christ is something that's true of Christians everywhere. And you say, well, I don't really want that connotation of being a slave. Well, listen, you don't have a choice. <clears throat> you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ who sets you free from sin. Thomas Manton, the great Puritan, again wrote these words, Your tongues are not your own to speak what you please nor your hearts your own to think what you please, nor your hands your own to do what you please. 
by virtue of your creation, you are another's and are bound to live and act for another according to his will for his glory. Jude is going to call us to contend for the faith. But before you contend for the faith, know who you are. Know who your master is. And yield yourself to him completely. Secondly, realize where you are in Christ. And I'm, ta- I'm not talking geography here. I'm talking positionally. The or- original recipients, as we mentioned, were probably Jewish believers in a church. And this is who he's talking to. He introduces himself. And now, he, in the second part of verse 1, he's telling who he's writing to. And he says, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating that the one who is only worthy of being a a slave in his mind, in his understanding, now addresses his readers as beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And so Jude graciously understands and grants the believers here in the church his own family status. And in doing so, he reminds us of of this great gospel privilege of being a son of God, a a child of God. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So he tells them of their position in the family of God. First, he says, you're called. You're called. It's a form of that Greek word kaleo, which means to to, to call out. And the emphasis on this particular word here is, is not so much the gospel call, which goes out broadly to all when we preach the gospel and, and how all are called to repent and come to salvation, but this is a specific and, and, and focused effectual call. It's the type of call that when Jesus called Lazarus when he was in the tomb dead as a doornail and he called his name Lazarus and what did he do? He got up. He had no choice but to get up because he was summoned to come. It's the sovereign grace of God that invites us, but not only invites us, but welcomes us as as the chosen in Christ. We are called. Paul understood this when he talked to the Corinthian church in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, saying that we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we see this calling connected to the new birth, to the gift of regeneration. That's all of grace here. It's not Jesus called my phone and I picked it up and answered. It's you were summoned into the family of God and that grace was so strong and so effective it drew you in and pulled you close to himself. To be called is the essence of being a Christian. You've probably experienced it. If, well, if you're in Christ, you have. But you, you, you might have experienced it in, in, in some very unique and beautiful ways. 
We have to be careful about understanding our salvation being based or built upon my decision. Like, I remember the day I walked that aisle and I came forward and that's the day I got saved. Were you called? And I hope you were, and many have been. But that's not the ground of your salvation, is the fact that you, you signed your name somewhere, you, you did this or you did that. Some of you never even did anything like that, but yet something happened on the inside, didn't it? You, you, you had no desire for God, no interest in the Bible, no interest in Jesus, but all of a sudden something changes. Jesus becomes very appealing to you. You find yourself opening your Bible in the morning and being engrossed and pulled into it. You find yourself thinking throughout the day that you want more of God. Your desires begin to change. Your old friends call you and say, hey, we're going to go with this place with so-and-so. I'm not interested. I I don't even want that anymore. (coughs) I want him. Your actions begin to change. You want to please him. I don't want to neglect the responsibility of responding to the gospel call. You did choose him if you're a Christian, but God, the Holy Spirit, fixed your chooser first. (laughs) Otherwise, you would never have come. This is the strength and the force of a calling. This is God taking a people for his own possession, according to Titus 2.14. This is a calling that is so strong that it was founded from eternity past according to Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Just think about that for a moment. That if you're in Christ, it wasn't just something that, that came up by accident or suddenly, it's something that God, God, from eternity past said, you're going to be mine. I'm calling you. It's the... It's the theme of the beautiful hymn that we sometimes sing. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth and I followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's the heart and the song of the called. Called also beloved. To be the beloved of in God the Father. In John 14, 23, Jesus said these words as he was in the upper room. This is the last few hours that he's spending with his disciples. And so these are some of the most important, tender, and comforting words that Jesus speaks to his disciples And he tells them, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Oh, what sweet, beautiful words. They didn't get it then, did they? They didn't understand it. He gathered them, and, and they don't put it all together until after the resurrection. And it I understand because in one sense, such words, such such incredible words that my father is going to love you. 
my followers. He's, he's going to be your father and his love is going to be set upon you. There's a dimension to such beauty and magnificence that that's, it, it goes beyond simply the cerebral. And it is cerebral in the sense that it engages our minds, but it's far more significant than that. He, he's saying, I want you guys to know that I'm writing to you that you are the called of God. You're the people of God. You're, you're saints, every single one of you, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son. And as the called, you're beloved in God, which is a love that stretches all the way across the Old and the New Testament. It's a love that's, that's unhindered and unimpaired by time or by distance. And it's a love that's, that is enjoyed for those who are in Christ, in Jesus. It's the love that was the blessing of, of Benjamin. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses, at the end, towards the end of his life, gives these blessings upon the, the tribes of Israel. And I love in verse 12, when he talks to the tribe of Benjamin, he blesses them with this word. He said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. The idea there is that the beloved is, is so secure, is so safe. The picture of the shepherd picking the lamb up and putting it between his shoulders and bringing it to safely into the fold. Oh, how we need this picture in front of our, our minds and hearts because too regularly we're the sheep going astray. We're coming up with our own ideas, our own visions, our own ways, heading our, our own direction, and then the call comes. The call of the shepherd. Come to me. I'm the good shepherd. I, I give my life for the sheep. And he picks us up and he carries us on. Those who are going to contend for the faith need to know the love of the Father. And if you're anything like me, there's times in your life where it's a struggle. Where you, you, your eyes went elsewhere, your heart drifted somewhere else, and you, you, you don't realize how loved you are. You don't, you don't chew on it enough. You get hurt or rejected or damaged by somebody, and then you begin to question Am I truly loved? Jude wants the church to know they're God's beloved. And that's a beautiful word. It's a fatherly word. I love my, my children. Each of them and all of them. There's the other one. And I don't love them because of what they do or don't do. And I'm a weak father. Imagine the Heavenly Father. And know and understand that His love for us doesn't depend upon us. He loves us because He loves us. 
He loves us because that's who he is. If God's love depended upon the object of his love, he would never love us. His love is what makes us lovely. And that's what's amazing is that he loves the unlovely. And the more we comprehend his love, the more it changes us and be become the lovely. Again, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. It's a deep love. It's an eternal love. It's, it's a love that, listen to this, that will be manifested for all eternity. Grasp this, Christian. If you, if you drifted, pay attention to this right now. There will never, ever, ever be a time where God will be done loving you. Ever. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, he loves you. And he doesn't love you more this morning because you read your Bible. And he doesn't love you less this morning because you, you blew up on your spouse or your, or your child or your sibling or, or you kicked your dog or something. Being loved of God doesn't depend on you. It depends on your union with Christ. Are you his? Are you called? And you're loved. And some, some of you need to hear this over and over again because you quit, you stop believing it. You wonder, you, you disbelieve in God. Does he really love me? And, and yet, he's already told you with a big, bold letters with exclamation points all over them on the cross. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, dear friend, if you're struggling to comprehend God's love for you, I plead with you and I encourage you, go back to that sacred ground of the cross. Go, go meditate on the depth of his love in the cross, the height of his love on the cross, the breadth of his love on the cross. And may you, may you understand and, and experience and feel his love for you. Called, beloved, and kept. The keeping power of God is important here. Jude's going to use it a, a couple times, this word, to keep. We're going to study it as we uh, go through the next few weeks, but he wants you to know the called and beloved that you are kept for Jesus. When we read the Psalms, and at the beginning of Psalm we have this open, uh, the Psalms, we have this opening moment in Psalm 2 where <coughs> the psalmist says that God will give the nations to Christ as his inheritance. He gives, them a, a, he gives the Son a people. We sing it in song form, where, and you will have the prize for which you died, an inheritance of nations. 
And so this beautiful picture of we are the gift of God the Father if you're in Christ to the Son. And if you know anything about Jesus, when something he loves is in his hand, he's not letting go. You're kept. In John 10, 27 Verse 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Those whom God sets his affections on, he calls and those he calls, he keeps. And those he keeps and preserves are preserved for what? For Ever. Thomas Manton wrote, Jesus Christ is the cabinet wherein God's jewels are kept. And so that if we would stand, we must get out of ourselves and get into him in whom alone there is safety. Believers in Christ are secure for all eternity. Now, do you see through this how good of a pastor Jude has been? Look what he's doing here. He, he's got a lot, of, there, a lot of material coming that we read at the beginning that's quite devastating, quite challenging. But before he dives into the woes that are coming, he establishes these truths that are vital for the people of God to understand. He introduces himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I don't introduce myself as the half-brother of Jesus. Yes, I'm the brother of James, but I am, by identity, a servant of Jesus Christ. And you, church, are the called, the beloved, and the kept. In other words, what I'm writing, Jude would say to you, is also true of me. I'm one of you in this. Lastly, three, point three, realize also what you have in Christ. Jude closes his opening salutation with these, this prayer, if you will. He says in verse two, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy. <clears throat> mercy where God doesn't give us the things we deserve. Paul understood this, didn't he? Paul, this great Pharisee, self-righteous, evil man. And he's looking back upon who he was before he was in Christ. And he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says these words, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy. God was merciful to me. He didn't think he needed mercy. He thought he was in perfect shape until God showed him that he was in deep need of mercy. I wonder, do you 
Do you think much about mercy? Do you think that if God had not been merciful to you, what a predicament you'd be in today? I know we all have parts of our lives that are part of our story that we'd like to change. Things we would have done differently. Different directions, but disappointments that we look back upon with regret. But, dear friend, listen, that the God who called us is the God who loves us and is the God who keeps us. And this God is a God of mercy. And this is important because if the church doesn't understand the mercy of God, what he's about to call them to do, in essence, is to put the boxing gloves on and go fight. But he wants to make sure before you do that, <clears throat> you better understand that part of your fight is understanding how you've received mercy so you can give mercy. Mercy and then peace. Peace in the, in the face of disruption and storms and opposition. A promise of God to his people in Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Or Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which Paul says surpasses all understanding. We don't grasp it, do we? It doesn't make sense. It's just peace that passes all understanding. He says, that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then he closes with love. Mercy, peace, and love. And this is, again, very important <clears throat> because, like, if you're like me, when it comes to defending truth or, or being... Uh, making sure that things being just and right are important, that desire can, can come in and, and then you get a call to go fight and you're all about it. But listen, the call to contend for the faith is not the same as being contentious for the faith. Love. So when you think about the fight of faith, which we're going to talk about next Sunday, so come ready and prepared, but before you do, meditate on this. We read it at the beginning of our service. Love is patient, and it's kind, and it does not envy or boast, and it's not arrogant or rude, and it doesn't insist on its own way, and it's not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Mercy, peace, and love. And Jude doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I want that to be added to you. My prayer for them, he says, is that it be multiplied to you. Multiplied to you. Not just added, to, to be increased to the fullest possible measure. How many of y'all like multiplication? Sarah, thank you. And Joe Hamer, all right, we got a few. I, you better like it now after today. Dan likes it too, right? All the math people are like, no. <laughs> I love, my, my daughter has a little pen, pencil bag for, that she carries to school and stuff, and it says 
math, grow up and solve your own problems. <laughs> I'm not a big math guy, but I love multiplication. And it's powerful. You'll know, you know this if you know certain financial rules, right? You, well, if I offered to give you $500,000 today, or I'd give you a penny a day times two, doubled, every 30 days, what would you take? <laughs> My hope you would have, is that you'd have some patience, because throw that chart up there. A penny a day doubled every day for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, you have $5.4 million. <laughs> if you wait one more day, you get like 10 point something, right? It's the power of times two, times two, times two, times two. And this is what Jude wants and prays for you, for me. Mercy. Peace that passes understanding and love times two, times two, times two for eternity. It's amazing. God is a God of multiplication, right? He, he could have made just one fish, couldn't he have? He could have made like two stars, but he didn't. He multiplied them all. Why? He's the multiplying God and so Jude says, this is my prayer for you. I was planning on writing to you more about this common salvation, and, and it's, it's, it's incredible, you got to know it. But there's some, some things coming in, and understand multiplied blessings come with multiplied responsibilities. And Jude knows that there's some creeps that have come into the church. I call them that because that's what he says. They crept in <laughs> unnoticed. They're creeps. <laughs> we'll talk about them next Sunday. But for now, let's just prepare this week, prepare your heart as you grow in contending for the faith by just realizing who you are in Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a servant of Jesus Christ. Realize where you are in Christ. You've been called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ and realize what you have in Christ. The multiplied blessings of mercy, peace, and love. This is your reality, Christian. This is what is raining down on you every moment of the day because of the grace of God. This is what is most deeply true of us.